This is Conversation 8 of Finnegan's Take, and it begins our journey inside SOS, a citywide unit that acted like a pack of road warriors scouring the city to remove illegal guns and drugs from Chicago's streets. SOS was abbreviation for a special operations section. That was the unit that was started after the gang crimes unit was disbanded. And it was a citywide manpower unit, which would supplement district personnel or any type of civil disorder. It also had, which existed previous to that, in gang crimes, which was called the hostage barricade terrorist team was called HBT, and that was the predecessor to SWAT. And I was a member of that for 10 years when I was in special operations. So this unit was started in 1993, I think, was the first year, if I'm not mistaken. I was in the 7th District, and like I said in a previous conversation, I was notified by my commander that a deputy chief had requested me to be assigned to special operations, transferred there. So I left the 7th District gang team in the spring of 1994, and I went over to work with my partner, who I worked with for almost six years, a guy named James Sanchez, Jimmy Sanchez. He came from the 12th District. We became partners in special operations, but worked together until he made detective, I think in sometime in 1999. But it was actually, it was a great unit to be in. A lot of good guys there. You work citywide. They'd give you different districts to work every night. And basically, you'd go out, and the same thing I did in seven. We went after guys with guns because guns were the top of the food chain. And that's what the police brass wanted. That's what City Hall wanted. So they gave the brass their marching orders and told them to clean up the streets, get the guns off the streets. The guns are killing people. Where was SOS headquartered? Was it all centralized? Yeah, it was. Initially, the first years, uh, early years, were located at 3151 Harrison Street, which was the area for headquarters. It also housed the 11th Police District, and upstairs was the Detective Division. And we had some small offices on the first floor there, very cramped. When you show up there day one, are the marching orders the same as what you were doing in the 7th District with gangs? It's like, just, Jerry, go do more of the same? Yeah, so there were quite a few guys over there already I knew. There were guys who had preceded me going there from the 7th District that were there already. So I was able to pretty much fall in line with everybody. It wasn't hard to get along with everybody there. Everybody was, pretty much everybody was a worker there. You locked people up every day. It's kind of an odd thing because I went to the police memorial for five years straight back in the early 1990s. Well, actually, the mid-1990s. And I got to meet policemen from other cities. I was pretty amazed by the guys from New York, biggest police department as it is. There were specialized units that would go out and look to arrest people every day. But for the most part, the guys who worked the precincts in New York, and I got to know quite a few of those guys from being out there in D.C. for the memorial and kept in contact with them. They would come to Chicago for the St. Patrick's Parade. I was kind of astonished because they would tell me sometimes they would go one, two, three months without making an arrest. They call it collar up. I just couldn't believe it. I said, how do you get away with that? And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, there's no pressure to go out and lock people up every day? And they're like, no, man. You know, and I was like really, really astonished by that. Because I would go out on the people I worked with and all the guys in Chicago. And you'd go out and lock people up 
daily. And I'm not saying just looking to lock people up for BS stuff. I'm talking bad dudes out there that were doing bad things. So there was an abundance of stuff to do. And I just couldn't believe that that city, the size it was, that they weren't locking people up every day, as opposed to like Chicago. We were constantly locking people up. That is interesting, which means they must have been turning a blind eye to a lot. It's funny you say that, Neil, because in jest, they made some comments. And then later, when the alcohol started flowing, we're all drinking and stuff. What do you mean, man? They're like, yeah, dude, listen, fuck, we don't get involved in that bullshit. So I said, well, how do you not get involved in it? That's what you do. And they're like, nah, nah, you just, you just keep driving. You don't have to, you don't have to stop or you don't have to, I'm like, wow. It just kind of blew me away to be honest with you. This SOS unit, when you enter it or you're transferred or you're requested to join, it's already established. Yes. What is its reputation? Is it, because I want to know where it ends up going and I have a feeling I know where it ends up going despite its demise. I know it's wildly successful, but when you enter where is it in the pecking order of organizations or units inside CPD that are successful? Is it considered a success? Oh, absolutely. The sheer numbers, you couldn't argue with them. The statistics were just unbelievable. You're talking 300 guys, and those weren't 300 guys working the street. That was 300 guys assigned to the unit. So realistically, you maybe had 200 and 40 people that worked the street, and then you would take the supervisors out of that equation. You know, the sheer police patrolmen. So you roughly, you probably had, you know, uh, 200 guys out there every day. I thought, and I could be wrong, but I think, you know, I mean, it's hard to to say now because it's been so long, but I want to say we were taking roughly 15 to 20% of the guns recovered off the street were recovered by our unit in the city. Is it accurate to call it like an all-star team or the... I wouldn't go that far, Neil. No, I, I would say these these were guys, and you're going to have guys that were not in that unit are going to argue and say, well, yeah, because they had phone calls to get there in a sense. Okay, they had phone calls to get there, some of these guys. It didn't make a difference because they were still working their asses off. And they were going out locking bad dudes up every day and getting guns off the street, getting guys for armed robberies, and, you know, getting guys for shootings. You're driving in your vehicle and you're not, you know, you're listening to the radio and you don't get a radio call, but you on view a guy and you can see him, you know, on top of another guy. And you're like, something's not right here. So you get out of the car and the guy takes off. And the guy starts yelling, he just robbed me, he just robbed me. So the guy's got a gun, so you're getting a guy for an armed robbery. That's called an on-view. You see that yourself. You're not responding to a call. And then secondhand witness telling you, you know, uh, this guy, he was wearing this, this and that. You saw him with your own eyes. You see a guy shooting a gun. You see that. It's not TV. There's people out there shooting, and you're coming up that block by chance. And, you know, police work is... 99% is intuition. You're out there. You're in the right place at the right time. And that's it. You can drive around all night on a winter night and not find anything. You're beating yourself up because you want to get somebody because that's what you're out there to do. And that's what I was out there to do. Well, wind would be blowing. It'd be cold as hell. Your face would be hurting when you got out. But you're going to get out. You're going to pat people down because if they're standing out there and it's that cold, they're doing something. Because who the fuck's going to stand out there when it's that cold if they're not doing something? They're doing something dirty. They're selling dope. 
because you know yourself, you're not going to stand out there in sub-zero weather, freezing your ass off with five layers of fucking clothes on if you're not up to dirty. You're doing dirty out there, and that's why they're out there. So you get out, and you're up on them, and you're searching, and you're checking them out. But it doesn't always work out. There's nights where it's like shooting fish in a barrel, literally. Your time in SOS initially, and maybe throughout your whole run, is an extension of what you were doing previously in Gangs West and the 7th District. What is your personal aspirations as a member of SOS? Is there some milestone that you're aiming for in your career? Is there something that you're driving towards? Or is it just like a daily, not grind, but the continual ho-hum of doing what you're doing, which is getting guns and drugs off the streets? Like I said before, you know, I never really wanted to be a detective. I was put in for that position, the meritorious position, or submitted meritorious, I should say. If I got it, I got it. If I didn't, I didn't. So, I mean, I didn't dwell on it. I really did not apply myself. I did not study the sergeant's exam because I just didn't really think I would have made it. As a white male, when you take that exam, you have to score pretty high. And you're basically competing against other white males and white females because you are put in a different category. You're not given any extra points or you're not given any chance of advancement just based on meritorious, like some of the other candidates in the pool. Some of the candidates in the pool did not have to score as high, but they would make it. They would be promoted because they go down further on the list for some individuals. It's very competitive when you get into the testing for police sergeant, police lieutenant, because if you don't score high, your chances are pretty slim to nil. Like I said, if you're a minority candidate, you have a very good chance of getting promoted because they go deeper down on the list to promote individuals who are in those groups. So I really didn't apply myself and study, not out of laziness. It's just, I don't know. It was just, you have to commit a lot of time to it. Besides work, I had a personal life. I saw some of my friends that were promoted to sergeant and I was happy for them. These guys really, really, really studied hard for that. Good for them. They put the time in for it. I would never say my job was ho-hum. It wasn't even repetitive because every day was different. Every day brought something new. Something can happen in the city where they would send us to address it. So there was always something interesting going on. I was fortunate enough to get on uh, the hostage barricade team, which I thought was very exciting. Had a lot of good jobs on there. The training was good. The guys, the camaraderie was great. We had some great job. We had uh, one individual, his name was Emmanuel Phillips, and he killed six people, including his father and two of his neighbors and three strangers. He was holed up in a hotel room or a motel room on the south side. I was the first one in on the entry in the room, and he killed himself. But this kid was a bad kid. We hunted for him for weeks as a unit. We're fortunate enough to get somebody to tell us where he was at. So there were a lot of exciting jobs like that. And there was never a day that was really dull. I talked to somebody that knows you. He told me that you were the leader in that you were so good at what you did and you were able to problem solve and strategize on your feet at the drop of a dime that even people who were above the chain of command would say, well, what do we do, Jerry? That you had this natural ability to lead the charge. When did that 
take hold in that SOS journey? I had the fortune to work with good partners and they pick you up just like you pick them up and you compliment each other when you're working. Kind of sense, you know what's going on. You know what to do next. It's like second nature uh, when you work with somebody like that and you get that type of partnership. For the most part, I was on a team that had some young guys on there, some guys that were inexperienced. Even though I wasn't very senior, the senior to them, so I was able to tell them and correct them, uh, don't do this, that's dangerous, do this, you know, do that. And, you know, these guys were were good guys, and they followed direction. It's just like a quasi-military organization, the police department. I did not have any rank, but if you're an experienced person and you tell somebody something, you might want to do this this way and illegal stuff. I'm not talking illegal stuff, you know, to benefit you or to make it more safe for everybody. Generally, they listen. You know, you get some guys that are assholes and, you know, then they're not long on the team. You talk to the sergeant or the lieutenant, you get rid of them. If they're not team players and, and, you know, they're dangerous. You don't want those people around you. When you talk about your partner, is that an assignment by the department or SOS that they couple people together and then so that's by choice you guys are together yes yes when you initially come on the job you train with your training officer after that's over then you work with basically and i had discussed this previously you work with people most of the time that nobody else wants to work with very fortunate to find somebody to work with who does not have a partner a regular partner maybe they had some fall you know a fallen out maybe the partner transferred to another unit so that person is available to work with you and somebody who's who's smart. You know, they work smart, they work safe, but you always go and speak to the watch commander or your lieutenant or your sergeant and say, hey, can uh, so-and-so and I partner up? And, you know, if you're both available, they'll, they'll partner up. I had a guy that I worked with in SOS for five years who later excelled and, and went up the ranks, hired as a police commander. Him and I did very well together. We worked well together. We were safe, and we had a lot of success. Very good arrests, notable arrests, and we got a lot of awards together. When he moved on, he got promoted. I brought a young guy in who I saw working in the Ninth District, and he was pretty aggressive. I liked the way he worked. So I asked for him to come over, and they brought him over for me. And he was eh, probably 20 years younger than me. But he was a good kid, and I enjoyed working with him. And his father had been a policeman and passed away. He was safe, as strong as an ox. We had a lot of fun together, and we made a lot of good arrests together, too. So in SOS, if you have this coupling of you and another individual, for instance, this younger guy, how does that coupling connect to a larger group, if there is a larger group? The teams, they're they're made up of a 10-man team and a sergeant. Well, what happened was there were individuals put on each sergeant's teams. And the sergeant wouldn't have a choice whether he wanted those people or not. He didn't have to take them. Not that he didn't like them as a person. He might not like something about them, or maybe this person was late every day to work, or was not respectful, you know, a know-it-all. So he's like, I, I don't need that. Eventually, that, that person just gets tossed out of the unit, because if nobody wants them on their team, they're not going to be around long either. So these teams are comprised. The sergeants have their teams, and you work in as a team. I think we were the ones back in the late 90s and early 2000s that started this thing called Wolfpack. 
actually based on like the German submarine squadrons. You know, we wolf pack, you know, we'd have like five cars together. And we would have success because we would hit these dope blocks where they've had shootings or a lot of activity going on. And we would hit the block with five cars. Sometimes we'd have other cars tied along with us. So sometimes we have like seven or eight cars. And it's pretty impossible for somebody to run who has a gun when you have eight cars there. It's just not two guys chasing them. You got a ton of cops. You kind of cordon off a street in a strategic way and hit it. So you're locking them in. Exactly. One or two cars go down separate alleys. So they'd run through the gangways. You have a car there waiting. And this was a very successful way of doing things. So what we would do, this caught on in the unit. And then we worked as teams, but sometimes guys would just go on their own and do their own things. I'm saying on other teams. So they saw the successes we were having, and then they started doing it. You'd go over there with four or five cars or six cars. It's kind of harder for them to engage you when you got that many guys there as backup. And it was a successful plan to use because it worked out for us. We were able to to get these guys taken off on foot or even in cars. This wasn't spontaneous and that you were just roving around. You knew there was activity or someone got killed in, in an area or a block, and then you guys would just strategize to go zero in there. Yeah, exactly. We weren't. You'd hit the main streets. Say, for instance, we were in the 11th District. You're going to drive down Chicago Avenue or you're going to drive down Pulaski or Madison. But you're going to see more on the side streets away from all of that. Because sometimes the street lights are off on purpose. There's more activity. So if you're hitting them on these side streets where it's darker, all of a sudden you've got six cars or seven cars. And they're like, hey, what the hell's going on here? And, but, I mean, it, was, it really, really worked out successfully. Not every day, but a lot of times it would work because you get the guy out there. They call the guy working security or two guys working security. And they would be the guys carrying the pistols. And they would be out there for protections of the dope spots. So you'd have a guy take off running down a gangway or another guy running down the street or something. So those are the guys, most of the time, that had the guns on them. It was pretty successful. And then, of course, you got those guys and you turned them for something bigger. And you just rolled and rolled, you know, like a caper. And you just kept going and getting bigger stuff and bigger stuff. That's part of what we discussed earlier, which is illegal. Mm-hmm. This rolling of people. If you're following the letter of the law, mm-hmm. if you stop a guy who's mm-hmm. got a gun and he's just security, you got to take, you him, take in. him in. Absolutely. You can't give him a street trial. You know, you can't you can't act as a judge and, and, and free him on the street. Although we did it. You know, I did it. And then, like I said, it was, you know, trading dope for guns. Was there a most wanted list, so to speak, of like people who were the real bad guys at the top of the food chain or killers or hitmen that were mysterious or untouchable or rumors about them and you were searching for these guys? No, no, we didn't actively look for pictures of most wanted guys. I mean, there were guys wanted, there were bad dudes. There were guys that were, like, you'd see the dicks. They'd come in in a district, you'd see a car with two dick detectives in it. Well, what's up? And they're like, hey, what's up? You guys in your, in your travels? If you come across so-and-so, we'd like to talk to them. There's a stop order on Stop order was a detective's place on an individual for citywide. If the police in the 18th district came across this guy downtown drinking, 
and they were smart enough to name check them or they got them. And there's a stop order on them. So they take them to the detective division, whoever's looking for them, area one, area four, area two. And it says stop order, one for questioning the homicide. And then it gives an RD number, a records division number. You got to know the guys who were the shot callers. Each gang had their own titles. The GDs had guys that were street level guys. They were called coordinators. And above them, they had like regents and above them, I think governors. But I'm not saying they're not going to come across a guy like that because he's going to come through, collect his money, or he's going to come through and check on, see what's going on, or visit his girlfriend over there. So if you stop him, you know who he is because he's going to talk to you like he's a LaSalle Street lawyer. How are you today, sir? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, what's going on? Why are you stopping me, sir? Well, I just want to see how you're doing this and that. You know, I mean, that's all. I noticed you're, uh, you didn't use your turn signal. Very polite. Don't want any trouble. They're, they're not going to give you any lip because they don't want to go to jail. Possibly they could be on parole. They're going to sweet talk you. If they're dirty, they're not stopping. You know, other than that, they're going to get out of the car. They're not going to have any issue talking, patting them down because they don't want any trouble. They're all about making money. Money was huge. So you bring up this wolf pack approach. And you've talked about some other methodology. Was there a better way to do all this? Forgetting rules and laws. Did you ever say to yourself, if I was in charge, this is how I would fucking roll this block? Did you feel like you were hampered in some way? Or did you feel like what you guys were doing was the best possible way to do it based on your resources? Yeah, I I mean, at the level we were, Neil, I feel that that was the best thing we could do. Truly, special operations, we're a citywide unit. For what we did, yeah, that was the best. The wolf packing was strategic, but it was also an officer safety thing for us. It might not be the guns were just as prevalent back then as they are now. The shootings were too. Maybe not in the numbers, but I mean, there were a lot of murders, a lot of shootings, a lot of drive-bys. So you never know who you were coming across. And I felt that the numbers, the safety, and it was good because you say you got two guys and it happened. Sometimes other guys were in court on days. And so you were lucky to have another car with you. So you're chasing a guy, you get separated, you and your partner, you're on the radio, but that's what policemen do every day in the district. So that's a normal thing. That enhancement of having other guys with you gave you a better opportunity to get those guys. So say if one guy ran and two or three were still standing there, but they were smart and they didn't run, but they had something on them. But now you got other guys with you. You're going to get those guys too. It worked out that way. A bigger net. Yeah, I feel that way. And I relate to a story, my partner at the time and I, there are two streets, actually two big streets, Francisco and Mozart on Roosevelt Road. That is just west of California, those two streets, and east of Sacramento Boulevard. And these two streets were controlled by the vice lords, and they were the conservative vice lords over there. The street leader, Pierre, his last name will come to me. But this guy had been in and out of the, you know, out of the joint a number of times. Very violent gang. Those two streets, Neil, were probably making easily a couple hundred thousand dollars a month each maybe more. That's being conservative. They were probably making maybe more than that, maybe a half a million dollars a month each street. 
One was selling crack cocaine. The other one was selling heroin. And Neil, it was a 24-hour drugstore. So one day, I just got sick and tired of seeing it. Why those two streets? Was it because of the geography of where they're located in terms of people being able to access it from the suburbs, I'm assuming? Yes. Okay, so fit, talk about that. Yeah, well, of course, straight down Roosevelt Road. Uh, in addition to that, the Eisenhower Expressway was four short blocks away. They call that the heroin highway. That leads in from most of the suburbs and to the suburbs and to the other expressways. You can access them. The White Eisenhower Freeway is called yeah, the heroin highway? Yeah. The oh, Dwight yeah. W. would be very yeah. proud of that yeah. one. Oh, he would. he would. Well, they'll probably rename it soon anyway. They renamed the other ones already. But the white customers are, there are so many of them. It's just, there's, I mean, it's amazing. Neil, you've never seen dope spots like on the West Side. Never. You'll go in an alley and you'll see 60 people lined up like they're waiting for communion in a Catholic church. Waiting in line to give their money, get their dope. It's never ending. Grabbed a couple guys and I told them, I said, uh, yeah, you know what? This is over, man. You know, this isn't going on anymore. What's going on? What do you mean? I just told them, I'm sick of it. You guys think you can do whatever you want over here. I said, you know, you're rubbing it in our face. The 11th district's only five blocks from here. First thing this guy tried, he was a street level guy, but probably mid level guy for the game. And he goes, well, we'll give you and your partner some money every month. And I'm like, nah, I'm not interested. He goes, you know, I'll give you, you know, $2,000 a month. And I'm like, nah. I'm like, what do you want? I said, I don't want anything for you. So he's going on and on. So we ended up putting a little pressure on him over there, sitting over there all the time, stopping everybody. They couldn't sell dope for a while. Next thing I know, the guy's telling us he's, he's going to give us some guns. Uh, he gives us some guns just to leave him alone. So you're squeezing him. You know that this is a notorious spot, and it's starting to drive you crazy that nothing's being done about it. So you confront this one guy on the street. Yeah, Ike was his name, and I'll think of his last name too. He, uh, this guy was weak. You know, we put him in a car after he gave us the guns. Got him a couple of days later, and I stopped him, brought him, you know, in the car, and I said, "Yeah, I guess you got a problem, man. One of those guns was used in the homicide." He's belching, he's hiccuping, farting. He's like shitting in his pants, literally. So he is going to give us some more information. Leads to a guy who's a UPS guy who is bringing a catalog along to all the dope spots. And he is just pick out the guns you want. And he jacks the price up on them and he gets the guns for him. And he's selling them all over the 11th district. The guy's name was Kevin Winters. And he was injured, and he was on uh, workman's compensation. He was a UPS driver. So he had catalogs. I don't know how he got them. He probably got them from the manufacturers. And he would take these catalogs around to all these gangs and tell them, I'd get you anything you want, anything in these in the books. These guys were buying 10 at a time. And he was jacking the price up like four or five times the value of them. So we sent the first five original guns that that guy turned us that I turned over to my partner and I, which like you turn every gun in to the, you send it to the crime lab, the Chicago police crime lab. They tested the guns. None of them were used in a homicide, but Jim Sherlock's uncle Bill was a police officer and he was a expert firearm uh, guy down there at the crime lab. He was able to 
he'd be able to test guns, he'd be able to find marks on them. So this guy was skillful, his, his Uncle Bill, very pleasant guy. So they asked me to call Bill Sherlock down there. So I said, are you related to Jim? And he's like, yeah, yeah. So I tell him who I am. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So he goes, listen, Jerry, the reason I want you to call is these guns that you got, we got somebody's buying these guns, and they've already put about 800 of them on the street. And I'm like, did you say 800? And he's like, yeah, that's exactly what I said. There were 800 purchased by this person, and they're putting them out on the street. And I said, wow, that's amazing. So my partner and I are talking about it. We go to our bosses, and we tell them. And they want us to get the gun unit involved. And we're like, nah. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, what the fuck should we get the gun unit involved? They didn't do anything. And they're, all they're going to do is steal it from us. So we go to the ATF and they have unlimited funds to buy money. And we set up some stings and we get this Ike to set up the UPS driver. And the guy brings 12 guns over to Independence Boulevard to an apartment building. Jim and I, my partner, and four ATF agents and a couple other bright guys with us. So when Kevin Winters, the UPS driver, uh, has a backpack and he's delivering the guns, so we take him down, we get him, take him into the station. He's got 12 guns in the backpack, handguns. We go to his house with a consensus search. I think we recovered 48 more guns there, brand new guns. So he tells us, he doesn't want to go to prison, so he tells us the ATF agents that he is working for a guy who has a federal firearms license. And the guy's name is James Bush. So the story is James Bush has laundromats and the businesses fail. So he is in financial troubles. So he turns to selling these guns to make money and money he made. And he was putting a ton of guns out there. So we set up a buy at Canal and Roosevelt at White Palace Grill. 24-hour, been there probably 80 years. So ATF, and there's probably 10 of us from our unit. Uh, we're going to take this guy down. So we got an ATF guy who is posing as a truck driver. He's got a truck from Customs. So that's what I said. I mean, they're, they're, the money they have and the shit that they can get is just unlimited. We are around the corner, and the ATF guy and uh, another ATF guy are in the white palace grill and when he comes there he has his car outside and the guys come out and we're watching him from across the street we have binoculars we're like literally right across this guy's not paying attention we're like down a little bit but we're like in a parking lot so he can't really see us we're all in regular cars like plain you know plain clothes so he doesn't know who we are i'm sure but anyway he comes out Opens his trunk. He's got like uh, 49, 25 semi-automatic pistols. I think they were Raven Arms or something. They were like shit guns, but 49 brand new guns. We go running across the street to make the arrest. The ATF guys. And the ATF guy, you know, I'm going to cuff the guy, you know, making sure he's kind of like struggling a little bit. And the ATF guy takes his styrofoam cup and puts it down on the ground. He's got a brand new cup of coffee. And during the arrest, I must have kicked it over because he told me, what the fuck, dude? I just brought that coffee. I just bought it. And I'm like, are you fucking serious, dude? The fuck, you got the coffee. We're making an arrest here. The fuck? 
it turned out to be the biggest. It was actually the biggest in the city's history. It's in the media, in the newspapers, guns, sales to gang members in the city's history. And my partner, Jimmy, and I were the ones that were instrumental in starting it, conducting an investigation on these guys just off of that, that street. And that happened because you had grown so frustrated with seeing these guys, as you said, rubbing your face and the fact that they could get away with whatever they wanted and you put the lean on this guy. And and that was a great case, Neil, but it even gets better than that. We went to our bosses because we were taking license plates. We were taking, stopping these people, getting their IDs. We were watching them, seeing what houses they were going into. This was a latter part of the investigation. After the gun thing, we went to our bosses, some of our bosses in narcotics, and told them, and they're like, yeah, we got so much stuff going on right now. And I'm like, well, but we're like, here it is. This just came from this big investigation with these guns just came from this. Yeah, yeah, nice job. But we're, you know, we'll, we'll look into it. We just don't have time now. So I said, fuck it. So I called the IRS. Actually, the ATF guy says, hey, man, call this guy in the IRS. He's a friend of mine. I guarantee this guy, Jeff, he'll, he'll do something. So I called him up. We met him. I had coffee with him, my partner and I. And he's like, oh, fuck yeah. He says, I'm very interested. So I gave him all the information of the VIN numbers that Jimmy and I got, the names and all that, the houses, where they were going, all the women involved, blah, blah, blah. They did multiple search warrants, seized property, and locked up a bunch of people, including Kenny Shannon, which he went by Kenny Shoulders also. He was the number two guy over there for the conservative vice lords. Uh, they didn't get Pierre, but they got Kenny Shannon and Ike and a bunch of other guys. And they got Kenny Shannon with a shot, sawed out shotgun in his house in Mel- uh, Maywood, I mean. So he did some prison time too. But it turned out it was good. And it was good. And the best is one of the one of the uh, guys involved in it who bailed out one of the guys we arrested for a gun was one of the Bulls players, Dickie Simpkins at the time. He came in and posted his cash bond. It's pretty interesting. Here's the thing, you know, when when these guys they grow up in these neighborhoods, so and I don't know where Dickie Simpkins grew up. They go on in life, a lot of them become successful, but they grew up in those neighborhoods and they are at one time or another members of those gangs. And there were a few other guys, my partner Jim and I, and some other guys that I worked with, we were out in the 8th District, and we saw Bulls players playing basketball with uh, the CVL, the Conservative Ice Lords, over at the gym over there in the projects. There were like four or five of them. So these two streets were sources of criminal activity, and by pressing and leaning onto one guy, it's like pulling up a rock. He was the weak link. He was actually the wink link. You'll come across those guys. You'll come across those guys that are just not going to give you anything. They're not going to tell you shit. Okay? But then you'll come across some that are straight. They're going to fucking shit all over themselves, and they're going to give everybody up. I've had them where guys have given up their own brothers, holding dope in the house or something. It's pretty amazing. In in, in those two streets, uh, Neil, were very lucrative for those people. And, and that guy, I, you know, I want to say his name was Pierre Mahomes. I'm pretty sure that that was the name of the guy. He was a conservative vice lord leader. Funny because he was kidnapped by some Mexican gang, the 2-6, and they murdered him down on like 26th off of Costner somewhere. They took him in an alley and they tried to extort him and have his guys bring money and they never did and they, and they murdered him. After yeah. the guns are confiscated and this is a huge deal 
but you pursue it further because you know there's more crime there and the the traditional resources that you would go to or the narcotics the narcotics section I spoke to a supervisor there and he said not that he wasn't interested he just said that they were busy and if i wanted to give him the information they'd get to it eventually but not right now i wasn't much on sharing information on shit like that anyway be fucking i'm out there cultivating it why would i give it up I had a falling out with one of my commanders, Jim Darling, and I spoke about him before. He wanted me to give an informant I had up to his old partner that he worked with. That was a nice guy, his partner. Give it to him and he'll this and that. I said, I'm not going to do I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, you're going to give him the, it goes out. I never gave him the information. Fuck, what is he going to do to me? He ain't going to dump me because the fucking deputy chief wasn't going to let him dump me. What the fuck? I'm not giving information up to him. You give him to the dicks, that's different. Got homicides and stuff like that. You get information. Like Area 4, those detectives were fucking top-notch guys, man. They had some, these fucking, some of those guys there were some of the hardest working detectives I ever met. There were detectives in other areas that were good, but I didn't have as much luck. My partner and I, because we worked mostly the west side, we liked those areas. But Area 2, out on the far south side, we didn't work out there. So they didn't know our reputation. They didn't know Jim and I, and they didn't know our unit as well. Area one, Jim had worked there and area one, I never had any luck there. As a matter of fact, some of the guys in area one, yeah, just, you know, you give them information, you never fucking hear anything about it again. Next thing you know, they're making the rest on it. So yeah, I'm not interested. But the guys in area four, stand up guys, the commander there at the time was Jack Kozaritz, fucking great guy. They had a guy, John Farrell was a lieutenant there, fucking dude, the dude was the police, man. He's the one that killed a fucking dude tried to stick him up. He was acting like a pizza delivery guy because they were sticking up pizza delivery guys. And the guy came up, tried to stick him up, and he fucking sent him the fucking the big little Caesars in the sky. When you roll up this street, you get the guns, which is a huge deal. Fucking huge. Boy, I wish that was happening in the city now. Maybe it is, and I don't hear about it. And then you get the IRS involved, and they're able to do a lot of actionable things that are positive. Oh, man, they hurt them, too. They took, they took some homes and buildings over there out in the suburbs because they were all owned by gang members, but they were under fucking bullshit names like, you know, the aunt had it or the girlfriend had it, but it was all being paid for by the fucking, the dope proceeds. So they fucking, I really wish I could remember this guy, Jeff's last name, but he was fucking, and if you looked at him, Neil, he looked like a fucking nerd. And this guy, man, this guy was, he would dig. This event is a big deal. And these are the things that elevate you in the eyes of your higher-ups and the awards and the accolades, right? I mean, you're building the Jerry Finnegan success story as a cop off of things like this. Are people taking note above you? Is Are you, are you getting accolades for specifically these types of things, or is it unnoticed? Yeah, we got some department accommodation for that investigation with the firearms and the IRS. And then we also got certificates of appreciation from the IRS and the, the DEA, or I'm sorry, the ATF. So uh, it was nice. But and if I could say, you know, yes, it did bring the accolades and it did cut me a lot of slack with my bosses. But that was good and bad because it kind of like fucking, I could say it probably went to my head. And my attitude changed because I was like, hey, fuck it. I could do this or I could do that. And get away with it. Not criminal stuff. Like fucking, if, say for instance, they were sending us out to the 5th District. 
and I didn't want to go out there. I'd go in and talk to Lieutenant Jake or, and I'd say, Hey, you mind if we go somewhere else and, and work on something else, try to get some guns or something? Okay. Why is that a bad thing? Well, if you were saying you were supposed to go, if your team was supposed to go out to the fifth district, you should have went out to the fifth district because that was where the missions came from. The deputy chief of special functions and above him, they'd send a team out there, but we'd be the second team. I'd say, so I'm fucking driving out to five. You feel guilty about that? Well, I don't feel guilty. It's just almost kind of thought my shit did stink for a while. Like you have that feeling when you know you're being cocky and arrogant and it doesn't feel right, but you still don't care because you don't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. And I'd go in and I'd tell the desk guys, I go, hey, listen, why the fuck am I getting this piece of shit fucking car? You got all these fucking brand new cars, man. Well, so what? I go, don't put me in that fucking car again. You're becoming a prima donna with your success? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Yeah. So, you know. Do you look back at that and go, that was part of the problem? Meaning, had you just bit your tongue and taken the shitty car or or bit your tongue and gone to the fifth district, none of the stuff would have spiraled out of control? No, no, not, no, 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 it would have still spiraled out of control, you know, because when you are kicking in doors, going to houses, warrantless searches, even though they're gangbangers, it's going to come back, going to come, you know, there's a lot of cliches I can use, but, uh, you know, like I said, it's just going to, you know, eventually it's going to catch up to you. Got to the point you are getting big drug seizures and not getting money all the time. But when you're getting money and you're stealing some of it, it, it's like playing Russian roulette. Truly, you're fucking doing something you're not supposed to be doing. It'll catch up to you. And it did. And it might have been for a number of reasons. Maybe because it got too big and too involved with too many people. Um, because, you know, I mean, I knew of other people doing it and it kept it small and it never, never had a problem. You know, guys doing dumb stuff, dumb, dumb, dumb stuff, which would lead to, to more heat. This concludes conversation eight. Our next conversation finds Jerry burned out from his work in SOS. So he requests a change of pace and lands working at Midway Airport in the months before 9-11. In true Jerry fashion, he stops an airport employee from being killed by an unhinged robber. And he also confronts Louis Farrakhan's entourage when they attempt to bully Jerry at a security checkpoint. You don't want to miss this conversation. Thank you for listening. And here again is Refraction 3 from the album Lux Refractions by Lassell, courtesy of Scott Morgan. <laughs>